to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Today, I talked to Dr. Caroline Leaf. Dr. Leaf is a cognitive neuroscientist, and she's also the host of the Cleaning Up the Mental Mess podcast. For more than 30 years, she's been studying how changing the way that you think can actually alter your brain physically. She teaches people how to use their mind to grow their brains in a way that can help them succeed. And now she has a new book called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. Her book takes a really deep dive into the brain and how a simple five-step process can physically alter your brain. On today's show, we discuss some of the science behind Dr. Leaf's research and how her method works. Then we discuss that five-step process that you can use to gain better control over your mind. Make sure to stick around for the end for the therapist's take. This is the part of the show where I'll give you my take on Dr. Leaf's five-step process and explain how you can apply it to your own life and your own brain. So here's Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's mentally strong. This is her story. Dr. Caroline Leaf, thank you so much for being on the Mentally Strong People podcast. I'm so excited, Amy. It's so good to speak to you again. Yes, you as well. And thank you so much for sending me an advanced copy of your book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. I've thoroughly enjoyed reading it. And Um, I think I was most impressed by the fact that you took complex principles and broke them down into really simple strategies that people can start applying to their lives right away. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's what I've been trying to do for 38 years and 25 years in clinical practice. If you don't make it simple, people won't use it. So, Exactly. And so maybe we can start by talking about what happens when we don't use our minds correctly. Well, that's a good place to start. And I think a, a good thing is just to understand the difference between the mind and the brain, because I think there's a lot of confusion there. So I'm going to use some props, if I may, Abby, just to make it a little easier for people. Um, so here I've got a brain. And when we talk about mind, people always think brain. And that's really come from the last kind of 50 years of the whole focus on on brain, brain, brain. And although brain's very important, and I'm a neuroscientist, and I've studied the brain for 38 years, what's the thing that drives the brain? It's the mind. And so one of the things that I've really tried to study and research and written in, this is my 19th book, and this book is I can help people understand what mind is and how to manage it. So essentially, your mind is how you think and feel and choose. So it's three things, how you think and how you feel and how you choose. And as you think and feel and choose, you're generating energy. And it's not anything weird. It all can be measured with science and quantum physics and electromagnetics and and brain technology. But as you think, feel and choose, it moves through your brain and then your brain responds. So your brain is a very, very complex responder to your mind. And so whatever's going on in your mind is going to be influencing how the brain functions. And so, and then how your brain functions influences how your body functions. Your mind is basically then influencing your brain and your body. And your brain and your body are made up of somewhere between 37 
and 100 trillion cells. So then that all groups into the different parts of your brain and your body. And they run on, they literally run by your mind. So your mind is the energy that actually gets the, the brain and the body working. So when someone dies, there's no more mind and in the, in the brain and the body disintegrate. So it's, it's a very strong force that in science, specifically sort of neuroscience and philosophy and that they call the study of the conscious mind, as you know, the hard question of science. And that's what I've studied, the hard question of science. And I've tried to make mind accessible and help people to understand how they can manage their mind. Because mind is like the way to I, I understand mind or explain mind is how we think, feel, and choose. And you're always, you're always thinking, feeling, and choosing. So you can go three weeks without food. You can go three days without water. You can go three minutes without oxygen, but you don't even go three seconds without using your mind. So your mind is always on the go. So we need to understand our mind because it's our mind that we use to get up in the morning, to get dressed, to choose our food for the day, our exercise for the day, how we're going to set our mind for the day, how we approach our relationships, what we do. It's always your, your mind is first part is, is like your first cause. So if we don't understand the mind and we don't manage our mind, then all the other great things that we need to do with our life, you know, that's all the great stuff that you teach about what are mentally strong people doing. You have to, I have to use my mind to read your book, to understand what you're saying, to actually apply your techniques. So that's mind. So I try and go right back to the beginning. How can I understand mind and teach people how to use their mind so they can benefit from things like what you teach? You know, that they don't just read your books and think, oh, that's great to know. We'll listen to your TED talk and think, oh, that's great. That they actually use their mind to understand what you're teaching and then apply that in their life. So that's where I always have sort of pitched my work. And this particular book is an accumulation of all my years of research. Just recently did some clinical trials to update the the how we use our mind to change our brain and our body and update the systems that I've developed. And I've put all that that research into the book as well, which you would have seen. And then the second half of the book, I talk about the practical application of mind management, the neurocycle as a tool of mind management. And I'm glad that you separated that out because we don't think about our thoughts very often. We don't really think about our minds. We take care of our bodies. But for some reason, we just sort of neglect everything else when it comes to our minds and our brains. Exactly. It's so much easier to go on a diet or go on an exercise regimen and that kind of thing than it is to actually train your mind. And that's the whole thing is our mind is completely malleable and our brain is neuroplastic. So I neuro, mean, neuro means brain, plastic means to change. So our brain is constantly changing. It's never the same from moment to moment. And the thing that changes it is our mind. So how we use our mind, which is totally malleable because we can use our mind to train our mind, then changes the brain. And, you know, so if you think of like, I'm going to get into a good exercise reg reg regimen, or I'm going to control my thoughts, that's all a mind decision. So we need to understand mind in order to manage mind, in order to manage brain and body. And I think that's an area that's not really very well understood. So that's kind of the area that I've honed in on for 38 years now. And what are the dangers of having toxic thoughts and by not managing our minds? What happens to us? Okay, so when we think, feel, and choose, as I mentioned, the mind that that we, we think we're always thinking, feeling, and choosing. As I said, every three seconds, we don't even go three seconds without thinking, feeling, and choosing. And that thinking, feeling, choosing happens in response to what we're experiencing. So whatever, as you open your eyes in the morning, you're experiencing life. So you immediately are responding. You're thinking, feeling, choosing, and that 
pushes energy to your brain and your brain takes that and transforms that energy. It's electrical, chemical, electromagnetic and quantum and genetic. And it actually then switches genes on. It's like a light switch that happens and the genes express and you make little proteins and the proteins group together and I've got another little prop here and you build thoughts. So thoughts are, and as you said earlier on, we don't really think what a thought is. You know, people throw that word around, but what is a thought? A thought is the result of thinking, feeling, and choosing. So your mind is always in action in response to life. And everything about what you're experiencing, you're building into your brain as a thought. And those thoughts become the roots of what you say and what you do. So that's how significant they are. Whatever you say and do has come from a thought that you built as a result of thinking, feeling, and choosing in response to life. So you can do it, look at it both ways. You think, feel, life happens. You think, feel, choose, you build a thought. That thought then becomes how you, re, your, your behaviors and your actions. And your behaviors and your actions can be tracked back to your thoughts, which are tracked back to your thinking, feeling, and choosing, to the experience. So that cycle, that feedback loop is something that we need to self-regulate. And that's essentially what mind management is. So if we, if we don't self-regulate and we just become very reactive, which is what we've done over the last 50 odd years with the advances in medicine and technology, especially technology, we've become very busy. We've kind of got into hurry sickness and we don't think deeply enough. We don't take time to really manage our minds. And so we become very reactive. And if you become very reactive, that has a consequence in your, in your mental, your brain health, mental health and physical health. And we see from population statistics, and there's a whole section in my book where I talk about this, where we people have are dying younger now than they did Decade, for decades, we've been living longer because of the advances in medicine and technology. But because of the way we've now mismanaged our minds, people are actually dying 15 to 25 years younger than they, than they used to with advances in medicine and technology. So we've gone forward with te- medicine and technology, but we've gone backwards with our mind. And we see that being reflected in mental health statistics, in just how people in general, it's all over the place. People are really battling. We're battling with burnout. We're battling with racism. We're battling with all the social effects. We're battling with COVID. We're battling with with crazy things happening in politics. We, you know, all these, it, it's life, diet, exercise, people dying from, you know, and, and this is preventable if we manage our minds. So if our minds were managed, what we have essentially is people much more cautious about what they eat, about exercising, about manage, uh, thinking more deeply so that they actually um, process more effectively, so that they sleep more effectively, making better decisions, not being impulsive in reacting to situations and relationships and things that happen. So we've become a much more impulsive society and that's having a tremendous effect. So if you look at this particular thought, this is a healthy one. And this is a top. She held up a plant for people who are listening and not watching. <laughs> oh, that's it. It's a little green. It's a little mm. green plant. So mm. if you think of a little green plant, a nice or a nice healthy green tree, that's what I'm holding up. And now I'm holding up a wiry, toxic-looking tree, and that is um, got the branches and the tree trunk and the roots, and that represents a toxic thought. So thoughts are real things. As I said, our mind is how we think, feel, and choose, and the consequence of mind is we build thoughts, and those thoughts are built into the brain. And those thoughts are real. They occupy mental real estate. So everything you say and do isn't just some random event. It actually comes from a thought that you have built into your brain. You can't speak or do or do anything 
from fresh air. It's coming from a structure in your brain that you built with your mind. So based on that concept, if we are being impulsive and reactive and operating out of fear or anger or irritation or whatever, the chances are we'll build a distorted thought, a toxic thought. So mind not managed results in toxic thoughts, which results in toxic behaviors because a behavior comes from a thought. So when you understand mind builds thoughts, thoughts produce behaviors and behaviors have emotions attached to them. We can then track that back and we can actually learn to self-regulate that process. So mind management is regulating from how I'm responding to what I build in my brain, to what I say and what I do and, and backwards and forwards like that. So a toxic thought is also made of proteins. It's a toxic thought is also the result of thinking, feeling and choosing, but it's thinking, feeling and choosing in an impulsive, reactive way versus a directed, intentional way. And then the proteins don't fold correctly. So instead of a nice, healthy green tree forming, you actually, with uh, with all the branches, you actually form a toxic, distorted version. So the proteins don't fold correctly. We see this in neuroscience. That creates an imbalance of energy and it affects the neurochemicals and it affects the electromagnetic activity and basically it's brain damage. And because the brain is neuroplastic, the brain reorders and it changes how it functions and that then impacts every cell of our body down to the level of our DNA. And um, But when we manage our mind, we can reverse that process. You can actually change that. And that's why mind management is so essential that we need to, and it's uh, mind ma- part, the biggest part of mind management is self-regulation. So self-regulating, what are my, what are my uh, physical signals? What are my emotional warning signals? What are my behaviors? What is my perspective? Where is this coming from? What is the impact of what I'm doing and saying? We, from the neuroscientific research, are able to do that kind of self-regulation every 10 seconds. So if just in take it to the work you do, teaching people what mentally strong people do and the, the habits that they don't have, someone who's developed those habits is someone who's actually used their mind to actually work in a different way. So they've built in a whole lot of healthy thought patterns that they are drawing on to respond to life. So we build these general thought patterns that are ways that we actually handle life. So we have these good healthy patterns and that's what you teach. Those are, those are, those are healthy, um, mentally strong habits of mentally strong people. And those, those are general broad ways of operating. And then, and you, you view life through that and then you have good responses. But if we build bad habits, toxic habits, we have the toxic wiry tree, then that's how we view life. And that's not ment- mental strength. This is actually causing brain damage. And that brain damage not only is damaging the brain, but it causes, has an impact on every system of your body. So your cardiovascular system is affected and your brain, your neurological system and your immune system. And my most recent research, my clinical trials, I showed that within within minutes of um, making a toxic decision or having an impulsive toxic response, operating in a toxic way, you can change your inflammation levels in your brain and your body, which we'll see through increase in homocysteine, for example. We'll, we'll see, as we all know, increases in cortisol, a drop in DHEA. Those blood effects are actually happening after the brain effects. So the minute that I make a toxic decision, I actually create if I hold up the brain and if the brain's got two sides, it creates an imbalance and incoherence between the two sides of the brain. And energy moves through the brain and the brain responds energetically. And there's different waveforms that the brain responds in. And when we're in a good, mentally healthy, strong way of thinking, we have a balance between the alpha, um, the, the theta, delta, alpha, beta, high beta, and gamma. Those are the different waveforms. Each that 
they're all, all active at the same time, but they, it's like waves in the sea. And when you, for the further out to sea you are, the bigger the wave, and that would be your delta. And as you move in, the waves get a little bit smaller, and that they stay there. And then you get your the waves that actually start cresting, that would be your beta. And then where the white foam starts forming would be high beta. And then as it hits the beach and runs out on the beach with the little waves, that's gamma. And we have that cycle going on in our brain. But when we operating in healthy thinking, when our mind, when we when our mind is working properly, when we're thinking, feeling, and choosing, and self-regulating. But when we go into the opposite, we start then upsetting that whole balance, and we'll have maybe too much high beta, and then you'll get maybe a tsunami in your brain, or you'll get a, you know, or you'll get like flat line in your brain, extreme depression, where there's very, very low energy at the front of your brain. And when there's asymmetry between the two sides of the brain, that's not healthy either, asymmetry in different parts of the brain. And so in, in balance. And so any kind of reaction that's toxic creates a mess inside the brain, an energetic and chemical mess in the brain. And not only the brain, immediately immediately every cell of the body and the brain. So as you're thinking, it isn't just your brain that's affected, it's your entire body that's affected, right down to the level of the DNA. So I showed also in my recent clinical trials that when we don't manage our mind, when we just are aware, but we like stay in this like frantic state or impulsive state or reactive state, instead of directing our thinking, we actually will affect our telomeres. And for those of you that don't know what a telomere is, if you think of DNA and if you think of the chromosomes in the DNA, at the end of the chromosome, chromosomes look like a little X and I'm holding up my two fingers and I'm crossing them and I've got red nails and the red nails are the telomeres, just for want of an analogy. And the telomeres are very important for determining cellular health, which means health in your body and health in your brain. And every single cell of our body has got telomeres and telomeres are constantly being used up because they're used to build new cells. So as a cell replaces itself, then the telomeres are involved in that replacement. And the health of the telomeres determines the health of the cell, which determines the health of the organs, the systems in the body. And what we found is that when people have unmanaged minds and their thinking, feeling, and choosing is just all over the place, um, and there's just no self-regulation, no directed neuroplasticity happening, those telomeres shorten and get very weak. And when that happens, your cellular health changes. So we saw people that were in their 30s, that's there was the age, but their body, their cellular health was 30 to sometimes 30, 35 years older than the chronological age. So, and that's as soon as your body is, your physical body is older than your chronological body your vulnerability to disease has increased and your lifespan is going to decrease. But that can be altered. This is the amazing thing. We showed that within nine weeks of mind management, and nine weeks is a very significant number when it comes to mind management, um, that you can actually change the strength of your telomeres, which is phenomenal because most of the time it's been, um, most studies show it takes five years to create change in your telomeres. So this is one of the few studies that are now, um, that have now just been done, which is the study that I've just done, where we've shown that with mind management, it's quicker to impact your telomeres and, for example, dietary changes, which is what most people have worked on. And diet will change your telomeres, but your mind can change your telomeres within nine weeks, which means you can get your biological age and your chronological age matching up. I mean, those are very significant for basic physical health and mental health. Because if your body's feeling awful, I mean, we all know that feeds back into your mental health and you don't feel great mind-wise. You know, so it's a back and forth situation all the time. So the evidence is there between the mind and the brain. And the evidence is there that when we control our mind, I also showed with my research, that you can improve how you're functioning mentally, controlling the 
like anxiety and depression, et cetera, by up to 81% through mind management. So, I mean, this is very real. And this is what I've tried to show people in this book, that we we can manage our minds. Our minds are malleable. It's a skill that we can actually learn. It's not a therapy technique. It's not a, a little magic trick. This is hardcore science. It's a it's basically a strategy for living that anyone can use at any age. We should be teaching this to our kids from, I've taught this to kids as young as two and three, and there's no age limit. We we Our mind is a malleable thing that we can use our mind to train our mind and constantly improve the skill of mind management. And then we can take advantage of all the great information out there, like the stuff that you teach and the great exercise plans and the great diet plans and those kind of things and put those into practice. So it's kind of the first cause mind. And I'm so thankful for all the work that you do because as a therapist, I use the science that you have to then know how do I put this into practice? I have my offices full of people who will come in and say things like, can you help me uh, think more highly of myself because I struggle with low self-esteem or how do I get out of this pattern? I am in this uh, conflicted relationship and I end up screaming and yelling and doing things I later regret. I need to stop that. Or sometimes people think that they're going crazy because they're they're doing things that they don't want to do. They say, every day I wake up and I don't want to do this thing. I want to quit smoking or I want to eat healthier, but by noon, I just can't help it anymore. What do I do? And they're surprised to learn that very often we go back to just changing the way that they think, just learning how to notice what their thoughts are because we don't think about thinking, pay attention to the sort of thought patterns that you get into. And very quickly, people start to realize that they have a lot of the same thoughts over and over again and that those thoughts are, are essentially keeping them stuck in an unhealthy pattern. And in your book, you break it down into a five-step cycle of what we can do. Do you want to run through those things quickly to explain to people? I just want people to understand that when they read your book, these are very doable things. You're not asking people to do extremely challenging things or things that are going to be just too hard, but you really break it down into five simple steps. Yeah, absolutely. So the steps are so simple that sometimes people think it's too good to be true, but the steps are based on 38 years of research. So they're very, very, very scientific. So that's the first thing I want to stress, but very, very simple. And in my practice, I was working with people, like you say, coming in with those issues, but I also worked a lot with trauma victims and people with dementias and learning disabilities and um, Alzheimer's and, you know, that kind of, and uh, traumatic brain injuries. And I practiced for 25 years and I had all the science because I've always been a scientist. I've always done the research. But you, if someone comes into your practice and you've got this hugely scientific concept, that's well, they're going to say, well, that's great. What do I do? You know, so that's where I decided to get very practical. And I've spent these years um, simplifying a process of how can we direct our mind to direct the neuroplastic changes in our brain to change our body. So neuroplasticity is, neuro means brain, plastic means to change. So neuroplasticity is simply how our brain changes in response to our mind changing. So I did some of the first neuroplasticity research back in the 80s, where they still taught that the brain couldn't change. So that ages me. And they back in the 80s, that was, I was trained, the brain can't change. So, you know, that's it. And I said, I don't believe that. So I started working with traumatically brain injured patients where there was not much research and showing that if you show a person how to manage their mind through these five steps, and that's when I started developing this process of trying to understand what is mind, how do you use the mind to change the brain? What is a thought? What is memory? It's all these things that we just throw out the emotions. And there's just a bunch of words that we throw out, but what are they? And can you actually control them? 
And is there a process involved? So that's what I've created with these five steps. It's not a new form of therapy. It's basically anyone can use it. I mean, if you're a psychotherapist or psychotherapy techniques, if you're ACT therapy, CBT, all of that, those are specific kind of approaches. This is simply a brain, a mind-brain strategy into which you can fit everything else, kind of like a vehicle into which of how you use your mind to drive your mind to change your brain. And into that, you can put whatever works for you. And it should be a variety of stuff because we're all unique individuals and we're all going to, there isn't one cookie cutter approach to anything. We've all got our narrative. But what we do know is that if you want to get your mind under control, there's a, a process, a strategy. And that's what the basically what the five steps are. It's a mind strategy that you use to change your mind, to train your mind, to change your brain. So to understand that the five steps is one more clarification, mind is divided into three levels. And the, the, the biggest level, which is operating 24-7, is your non-conscious mind, N-O-N. And no one speaks much about the non-conscious mind, but we should speak about the non-conscious mind because that's the depth of who we are. That's our, you can call it your spiritual level, you can call it your wisdom, you can call it whatever it is. It's this huge quantum field, literally, that is unique to us with our own unique quantum vibrations translating back into our cells and to our brain and whatever. So it's nothing weird. It's all very, very scientific, but it is this huge, biggest part of us where it's, it's that part of you when you as a therapist or as a friend or as a parent or as a, a wife or a mom will say to someone, hey, you know deep down inside that that's the way to, you know, and or when you're telling someone something and about their relationship issues and they say, yeah, yeah, I got it. It's inside me. That's the non-conscious mind. It's our wisdom. It's our balance and um and it's the deepest part of us and that is always trying it's there for survival it's got a it's got a it's got a positivity bias so it's always trying to keep you surviving and anything toxic creates an imbalance in energy so like if we have a toxic relationship or toxic self-esteem or anything or overgeneralizing or always overthinking or whatever the situation is, or trauma that's undealt with, that creates this negative ball of energy in the non-conscious mind, which then is is because mind and brain are mind is and brain are separate but inseparable. Whatever's going on in the mind will be experienced in the brain and the body. So that then that imbalance is then pushed through the subconscious mind, sub which we're all familiar with the concept of the subconscious mind. But the subconscious mind is a bridge between the non-conscious and the conscious. And it's the part of your, of your your of your mind that starts becoming aware of, hey, something's nagging me. There's kind of this worry at the back of my mind or my body's really tense or my heart's physically sore because I'm so anxious or I've got this tension in my body or um, there's this nagging anxiety or there's a sense of something. That is your subconscious mind receiving the signal from the non-conscious mind. And it's kind of pushing it through and trying to get your conscious mind, which is the smallest part of your mind, which is only awake when you're awake, to pay attention. It's it's, it's like sending little signals up from the non-conscious through the subconscious to the conscious mind. And as we tune in with our conscious mind to these physical and emotional warning signals of, that are coming through the subconscious mind, we can then tap into the wisdom of the non-conscious mind and we can start finding the reasons why we've got the self-esteem issue, why we've got the, what's the origin story, what's the cause, why this trauma has, has that's been suppressed for so many years has impacted in this very ubiquitous way across my entire life or whatever. You can start finding, why have I got this toxic habit? Why do I always personalize everything? Whatever it is that we all do something, we're all doing multiple things. And there's reasons why we do them. So we can tap into, we can use our conscious mind, which is only awake when we're awake, to listen to the subconscious mind, which is always awake, 
and to the non-conscious mind, which is also always awake 24-7. So with our conscious mind, we can be very deliberate and intentional and use our veto power, veto power, which means we can override things. And that's so things can bubble up from our non-conscious through the subconscious. And sometimes it's a toxic thing that comes up and we have paid so much attention to that toxic thought that it's grown and become very strong. It's had lots of energy poured into it. So it's dominating our viewpoint. And but, but we can, even with that toxicity, we can stand back and observe our own thinking and say, hey, this is how I'm viewing life. This is my perspective. This is how I'm seeing everything with this myopic negative view. But actually, I can tap into my non-conscious and I can stand back and observe my own thinking, get a what I call an MPA, multiple perspective advantage, and observe my own thinking and change, use my wisdom thinking to change this this other thinking that's not quite right and, and then fix the thought. How do I do that? By tuning in, first of all, to the physical and emotional warning signals that this is emanating. Because every thought is a tree. Every thoughts are trees. And like a tree has branches, thoughts have memories. So the a thought is made of memories. So one thought will bring up thousands of memories, hundreds of memories. So when we talk about a thought, we're not just talking about one thing. We're talking about a concept that comes up, but it brings with it all the behavioral memories, the emotional memories, the root memories. So lots of stuff comes with it, the physical memories. So one thought brings up a lot of stuff. And what we what we need to do is tune into those. And it starts at the top. You first tune into the signals, which are your emotional and physical warning signals. And that this is what the neuro that what the neurocycle does. So the neurocycle is the five steps that teaches you how to use your conscious mind to listen to your subconscious mind, to listen to the message in your non-conscious mind. So it's taking you very deep into your level of wisdom. It's not it's not something that just happens like that. It does take time. So I'll first of all talk about the five steps, then I'll talk about the the time involved, because that's something that most of us don't really fully understand. It's not spoken about sufficiently. Um, so this this thought will generate signals, just like a flower generates a, a scent. This uh, the, your every thought generates a scent. So if it's a healthy thought, it generates a nice scent. But if it's a toxic thought, it's like imagine a sulfuric smell or whatever, a horrible smell. And those are signals that are uh, like the emotional signals will be things like anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar. Those are the big ones. They're not illnesses. They're not it's. They are symptoms, descriptive big category symptoms of an underlying something that's going on in on one's life. The less extreme ones would be things like anger or irritation or frustration or jealousy or envy or that kind of stuff. So all those emotions, which we, in this current approach to mental health, as you and I both know, Amy, is not the healthiest approach that we currently have, and we were kind of fighting the, the mainstream, a lot of us, um, is that those are not necessarily illness illnesses per se, like cancer or diabetes. Those are warning signals that something is going on in your life. So our current Western approach is to say, okay, those are bad. Those we need to deal with them. We need to label them and diagnose them and suppress them. But that's not going to help you because they are not the problem. They're a signal of the problem. They aren't the problem. So that's the shift. Depression is not the problem. It's a signal of a problem. Anxiety is not the problem. It's not the illness. It is a symptom that something's going on. There's an underlying cause. So the five steps of the neurocycle 
challenge you to look at and embrace those signals, not be scared of them and see them as helpful messengers. And as you embrace them, it's painful because it's hard to face stuff. It's hard to, as we know, thera- the therapeutic effect, the treatment effect, things get worse before they get better. Surgery, you, you've got to have surgery, but they're going to give you pain. They're going to cut you up before you get healed. And then you go through a process of recovery. It's the same principle. So, but we, we, we so we, we immediately, the minute people think of, of anxiety, depression, we think, oh, that's bad. There's something wrong with me. And then the labeling comes in and the whole stigma associated with that. So it's almost like in this day and age, we've created a system and it's happened about 50 years ago, which is that in order for someone's feeling of anxiety to be validated, it has to be given a label and called an illness. But I argue against that and say, why does a feeling that is so significant have to be validated with a disease label and locked into, into a label and limited to just depression? That depression tells me nothing about you. It doesn't tell me about your story. But if you tell me that you as X person had X abuse at X age and you went to all of this, and but you may not even know that yet, but you might be saying, I've got all these signals in my life and I've got all these behaviors, which would be the next level. These little branches, the top of the branches of the tree would be all the behaviors as a result of the, sig- the signals are pointing to the behaviors, which is pointing to the tree trunk, which is the perspective that you have, which is then takes us down to the origin story, which is the roots of what happened. That journey through the signals to the branches, to the tree trunk, to the roots is a journey that you can take with the five steps and eventually will take you to, will bring out the narrative. What is your unique story? Who are you? What happened to you? What your, maybe you immersed in some racist environment and you were abused and the socioeconomics, whatever. There, there is the whole story. So now we're getting more real. It's not that you have depression, an illness of depression. It is that you have had a tremendous life experience adverse and you have responded and reacted in the best way that you could. Um, and created patterns of reacting that were survival patterns that maybe worked in the moment, but haven't been dealt with. So now they're not working anymore. They're not sustainable. So they're impacting your relationships. They're impacting your health because this is damaging. Toxic thoughts are causing all this homocysteine to rise. It's causing inflammation, affecting your heart. There's vulnerability to illness. You just feel lousy. It's making you more depressed. So instead of seeing that lumping that all in one category, we can rather say, okay, let's embrace those and track the process and, and, and find the underlying cause and reconceptualize that. And a lot of people that have gone through trauma, and you and I both know being in this field, that any kind of trauma, people will feel I've wasted years of my life. I've lost time. Right. And that's, that in itself is very depressing. But in this way, we can, yes, that time has gone, but you can reconceptualize that as lessons and, to, and the past doesn't have to determine how the future plays out, which is a very hard thing to see when you're in the midst of pain and you're facing the pain because it just feels like lost time. But you can get to the point where you can reconceptualize that. So the five steps, essentially, that's the big picture. The five steps do all of that stuff very scientifically. As you're doing each step, you're changing, you're going deep and deep into your non-conscious, through the conscious to the subconscious to the non-conscious, and you are rewiring the brain. You are literally pulling up a toxic thought and changing the protein structure, the chemical structure, the DNA structure. So you're doing the most phenomenal and powerful brain surgery without the blood. So essentially the five steps are um, gathering awareness, reflecting, and I'll walk through each one, reflecting, writing, rechecking, and an act of reach. And they sound so simple and they are, but as I said, they're doing this profound stuff. You, uh, the, the, the first thing to do is to prepare your brain. Because your brain and body is a physical organ, it's always a good idea to prepare your brain before you just dive in and start doing 
this very, very big brain surgery stuff because it literally is brain surgery. And you prepare your brain with all the traditional things that we're so familiar with. And that's like deep breathing, which gets oxygen in your brain, which resets the PAG, which is basically from the brainstem all the way through. And it helps your brain to then get stronger. So breath work is very important. And there's so many different types. My favorite is Wim Hof. I don't know if you know the Wim Hof. Method. I do. I've interviewed Okay, great. So I've interviewed him a few times and it's one of my favorite, but there's also a couple of others like the one I've developed, the 10 second pause, which is breathing in for three and out for seven. And when you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, you increase your decision-making capability because that extra oxygen changes how your frontal lobe functions. You know, so there's breath work, there's meditation, but meditation, not just extracted as a reductionistic principle out of Buddhism, but done within the complete context, proper meditation, not just as a a commercialized mindfulness activity, which it has become to a large extent, but within its original, um, in a full, full on original format, things like havening, which is, you know, the gentle touch. And there's so many amazing brain preparation things. And I have lots of examples in, in the book. And I have an app as well, by the way, that goes with the book that people can go through the five steps audio driven. Um, and then, so there's brain preparations you, and you two or three minutes to prepare your brain. You can choose any one or combination of those techniques. So maybe you just do five minutes of Wim Hof breathing, or you do a minute of breathing and a minute of havening, which is the, which is basically, um, gentle touch, et cetera, and hugging yourself and or it could be tapping or whatever. Then you move into the five steps and the five steps. And I'll explain in a moment, but just to give you context, if you use the five steps for dealing with acute trauma, so your big T or small T trauma, you're going to do it for around about seven to 45 minutes a day. So you don't do it all day long. And that's a mistake people make a lot when they are trying to deal with trauma. They get stuck in it all day long. And you and I both know that's not healthy. Right. You, you, you can't sustain that. So you limit that. You boundary. You put it in a boundary. It's a limited time. You select a time in the day and you work on it. And you can work on the stuff in between therapy. So this neurocycle is, if you go to therapy, you're going once or twice a week. You've got to learn how to manage your mind the other five or six days of the week, 24-7. This is what the neurocycle is. This is what these five steps are. How do I manage my mind 24-7? And then you go and do the big work at therapy, and then you come and do your in-between work. So I'm very big proponent of going for therapy and having a support system. Okay, so your first thing is to is to gather awareness. You can't change what you're not aware of. So from neuroscience, we, we see that if something is suppressed, we can't change it. The minute that the, that we are aware of something, what we see in the brain is that the little toxic tree um, becomes malleable. So I'm shaking, for those of you who can see, I'm shaking this little tree now. But for those of you that can't, imagine a, a tree blowing in the wind. So it's moving. The minute you become aware, you change the chemical properties and the, the protein structure of the thought, and it becomes malleable, changeable. So awareness, this is not just mindful awareness. I'm, I'm going beyond that. We're going beyond mindfulness. Now we're talking about deliberate, intentional, what am I, what are, what are my emotional warning signals? What are my physical warning signals? What are my behaviors? So it's a very deliberate awareness of standing back and observing yourself in terms of the physical warning signals, emotional warning signals and behaviors. You're looking at that to your perspective, to trying to get to the root. So it's that, it's gathering awareness of that. And it's a gathering, it's an embracing. What we see from a research mine that I did recently, plus a, a great research paper came out of Texas University and a university in Japan, where they showed that in Eastern culture, um, that when the way you view depression and anxiety will impact how your body responds and how you function. And I showed this with my most recent clinical trials as well. 
that when you embrace depression and anxiety, as I already mentioned, as something helpful with a message, it's a symptom of an underlying cause, immediately your brain energy changes, your brain balance changes, your histamine levels, his homocysteine levels drop, your cortisol level balances with your DHEA. I can go on and on and on and on. Even your prolactin changes, your, your DNA changes instantly. So the minute you see them as helpful, even through your tears, even through your pain, but you say, okay, I'm not scared of this depression. I embrace it. And that's what the gathering step is. It's embracing all of this stuff to be a detective, to to put them on trial, to find what they mean in your life, because everything we do has a reason. And that's what we're doing here. We're finding the reason. And we're also shifting away in this gathering awareness through these five steps, which gathering awareness is the first one. We're also shifting away from the narrative that is all your fault because it's not fair to do that because then we say it's a neuropsychiatric brain disease and it's jumping out of your brain, which is what years of research have tried to prove and they haven't. They're trying to find the neurobiological correlate for depression. It's not there. You're not going to find that. You will find an effect of depression on your brain if you're feeling depressed, but it's not the depression that is causing your depression. It's not some neurological fault. It is a neurological response. Okay, so it's not a generator, your brain. Your brain is a responder. So the the event would have been some underlying cause. So it could have been the traumatic abuse, the whatever you've gone through, the COVID situation, the financial whatever, life. Okay, life is an experience and each experience is built into your brain. And in, in the five steps, what you're doing is you're gathering awareness of your responses. So I'm behaving in this way. Maybe I'm more irritable. Maybe I can feel my getting a lot of heart palpitations. I'm waking up in the middle of the night. My heart's physically sore and I'm feeling more tearful. And it's, that's the gathering awareness. What has changed? And then what are my behaviors? I'm more, I'm sna- more snappy. I'm, um, talking too quickly or I'm, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever little behaviors, maybe more aggressive or, um, not doing your work as well as you could, whatever. So you go from the signals, emotional and physical to the behaviors. And as you gather awareness of those, you have now embraced them in order to reflect on them. So the second step is a deep reflection. And you can see in all of those gathering, you can bring in a bunch of techniques, psychotherapy techniques. Definitely. In the reflex, yeah, in the reflex step, you can bring in a bunch of CBT, although I recommend the CBT techniques at step five, but you can bring in a lot of psychotherapy, ACT. In other words, it's not, that's why I say this is not a technique per se. It is a, a mind-brain strategy, that vehicle. The second step is this deep reflection. Reflection is what it, reflection is, if you reflect in a mirror, things look back at you. It's your ability to now look in the mirror of your life and stand back and observe yourself and literally give yourself therapy by saying, okay, what are these physical and emotional signals telling me? Warning signals telling me, what are my behaviors telling me? Why am I doing this? And, and then obviously there's a lot of questions that are, that you ask yourself that are, you ask, answer, discuss, ask, answer, discuss. That's a reflex step where you're digging down and that's where therapy can help guide and shape the questions. And what we've done in my app is I've done the basic uh, to the basic program, which is over 21 days, and I'll talk about the timeline in a moment. But in the app, I've also added in neurocycle life hacks. So I've added in five steps for if um, what do you do if you over if you personalizing if you generalizing if you are all those different toxic thought patterns that we can develop. Um, and we're add, adding more and more and more on all the time. So you can see quick ways, general ways that as a therapist, you can, you can, you can use that to help pay a patient and the, or a patient can help themselves and it can, from there can expand. So it's the basic core questioning 
that you would ask and go through for each of the five steps. Then once you, so reflecting takes you now through the subconscious and starts taking you into the non-conscious mind. The gathering awareness is, is you listening to the subconscious. You're actually listening to the signals that the non-conscious is sending up to try and bring balance. Remember, it's all about survival. That imbalance is causing brain damage. Brain damage is threatening your survival. So your non-conscious mind there is to protect you. So it's going to tell you what's imbalanced because that imbalance is causing brain damage and increasing your vulnerability to, to death. People are dying 15 to 25 years younger from preventable lifestyle diseases now in this modern technological age. So our trend of living has reversed, as I mentioned earlier on, and they're tracking it back to mind management. So if we, so what I'm saying is that now we can reverse that trend by learning to manage how we're managing our minds, which then will influence everything else that we do, which will then increase our, our physical and mental health and be, keep us safer from those preventable diseases. And it sounds huge, but mind drives it all. So when your mind's right, you can then listen to all the advice. That's the point, okay? So the reflex step is taking you to that depth. It's taking you to that deeper level. It's bringing more balance. It's activating the frontal lobe tremendously to, and in between there's whooshes of oxygen and blood to the frontal lobe. There's an increase in all the waves at the frontal lobe, which means your clarity of thought is going to improve. You start overriding that instinct in the middle of your brain, the limbic system, the, ba the basal ganglia, etc., that become very dominant when you have a toxic pattern that has become very dominant. And when you're in a threatening situation and you're triggered, that thing pops up. You, with these five steps, you can learn to override that and not just over, you're not just putting a bandaid on the wound. You actually completely pull it apart and you redesign it. So it no longer controls you. You control that. So that's what you're kind of doing with the reflex step. I'm just giving you the overview. Then the, um, the, the next step is what everyone tells you to do, which is write. And there's a million mm -hmm. reasons why we should write on a neuroscientific level. When you're writing, you're actually bringing order out of neurochemical chaos in the brain. You are helping for all those brain waves I spoke about earlier on to start coming back into balance. When your neurochemicals flow more in a more balanced way and your energy, alpha, beta, delta, gamma, et cetera, um, and theta, all of those, when they are flowing like the waves of the sea and doing what they're supposed to do, you have much more clarity of thought. So there's a there's so many other reasons, but you um when you write, I developed a system called the metacog which I talk about in the book as well, and I give examples. The metacog is, looks like, a, it looks like a tree where you work from the central portion and you literally just grow branches and you put words on branches. You don't write full sentences. You literally write down concepts, 15 to 35% of what you are thinking. And you just, you don't have to, it doesn't have to look pretty, but the first step of writing is just to put it on paper. So the third step is just vomit out those words in this, as, as best you can. And then you go to the fourth step where you start reorganizing. So now you're digging deep into the non-conscious. I've got this out of my non-conscious. Now, what does this mean? What am I saying? And I just had an experience recently. I use this neurocycling all the time. And I did a recent podcast of an experience that I just had. We had a very traumatic experience in our family. And I was sitting in hospital with a loved one. And I actually had, did a neurocycle just to calm my mind down. And to, because I needed wisdom on how to handle the situation. And I was amazed when I did that little right step of what came out. I didn't realize what I was, was driving the way I was acting to try and fix this person, whatever. But so what I'm saying is the recheck, the right step, the third step gets your brain on paper, it pulls out the depths of the non-conscious. And then the recheck step is your reordering. And these are very sequential. There's a reason why, because you each time you're going deeper and deeper and deeper. If you rush to write straight away, you won't get the same benefit. If you recheck before you actually write, 
you're not going to get the benefit. So recheck is a reconceptualizing. It's a going back and checking. What am I saying here? What does this mean? What are the patterns? What are the triggers? That kind of stuff. And then the fifth step is an act of reach. It's a, an action that you do. It's like a little full stop. So you do your five steps and you finish with an act of reach, which could be a statement. It could be a little action. It could be, it's generally something that's grown out of the recheck where you recognize at this point today, at day one, this is what I have learned. So today I'm going to remind myself seven times today to not say if only or whatever it may be. So it's a simple statement that in, in the app, the NeuroCycle app, which is currently called the Switch app, which we will be, it's going to be called the NeuroCycle app very soon. You can actually type it into your phone. There's a little active reach reminder section. But the active reach reminder is a little thing that takes you seven seconds during the day to, to just read. It just pops up on your phone and it keeps in mind the conscious, deliberate action that you need to do in order to be able to sustain what you learned that morning. And it's a full stop. It brings you back into a mental space. It's an anchor. The reason that's so important is that if you leave things open-ended, you will go into potential overthinking during the course of the day mm -hmm. and ruminating and getting stuck and you can go backwards and get more emotional and then you don't know what you're doing and get anxious and panic attacks. And So this is a way of capturing that and keeping it in a nice, neat cycle where you limit the time that you're working on it for all the brain neuroscience reasons, et cetera. And so you do, that's the basic five steps. I mean, there's a lot more obviously in the book and in the, in the, switch, in the NeuroCycle app that goes with the book. Then you do this over time. And so I don't know if you want to ask me any questions about the five steps before I explain the time factor. Well, I just want to say I really appreciate the one of the biggest things I appreciate about that is not only do you write, but then you recheck. So a lot of I think people forget that a lot. They write, they journal, they put everything they have out on paper. But I really like the way that you say, OK, first you have to gather awareness spend a few minutes reflecting on it after that and then write and then check it and then you can make a change after that. I love the sequence. I think that makes so much sense. Yeah, exactly what you, it's, and that's when you, when I tracked this scientifically over these 38 years, what's happening in the brain, I've tried all different combinations and that's the only combination that will take you to those steps and help to rewire the brain. So you, neuro, we, we even, so, so you, you even see the changes. So we track the changes in the brain at each point. Now, most people, I mean, Amy, you know, you're a therapist people give up very easily. Mm -hmm. And the average statistic is most people will keep going for about four to seven days and then they give up. That's when they're on their own. So that's where you know, the weekly therapy, you kind of keep them going, but people have to be able to sustain themselves. So what we see, I mean, you said with New Year's resolutions, the first week, the gyms are full. By the second week, people are like not coming anymore. You know, it's the general thing. Um, but so what we see in terms of time, we've seen this thing that people take 21 days to build a habit. That's a complete myth. There's no science behind that. So I decided over these years, and my most recent clinical trial did my most accurate advanced research in what does this timing look like? How, does, how long does it actually take you to make these changes? So it takes you 21 days to identify your toxic thoughts, to go through the whole process of the five steps, gathering the signals and all that process I've just described. And it, it, after 21 days, you would have broken down, deconstructed, and reconceptualized. It takes 21 days to do that into a long-term memory. So it takes 21 days to build the long-term memory. 
So, and then building the long-term memory doesn't mean that you've just put a Band-Aid on the previous thing. It's a complete reconstruction. The easiest way to understand it is if you take, if you buy an old ugly house and you decide to renovate it and you're going to the ugly house and taking photos of the mold and how ugly it is and you've, then you visualize this new plan and you get the new plan drawn up, knock down the old house and you rebuild the new. Now you've still got the photos of the old, but you've got the new that you're living in. You've created a new mental space, but you still remember it's imposed, it's superimposed on the previous. That's reconceptualization. You're seeing it from a completely different angle. Another way is the kintsu- to understand this is the kintsugi principle, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the Japanese art of kintsugi, which is when a, when a, a vase or a pot shatters, they don't throw the pieces away, but they meticulously rebuild using gold lacquer and platinum. So you have this beautiful new pottery vase that's got all these beautiful lines in, and those lines on veins are your story. And that's what we have to capture is that every single human battles with mental health because every human has a story. It's not some people that are ill and some people that aren't. We're all battling. We all have a story. We need to look at that uniqueness and we need to embrace process and reconceptualize into that beautiful pot. That's essentially what the five steps are doing if you want some nice philosophy or sort of more artistic viewpoint of that. But it takes time. And and what we saw is gamma peaks. Now, gamma is a waveform that happens when there's a lot of integration and learning taking place in the brain. So we want to see gamma peaks. And we saw a big gamma peak at day 21, and then another one at day 42, and then the most sustainable one at day 63, with a sinking back down into into the non-conscious mind. So there's all the, I put some graphs and things in the book, but to make this simple, what you want is a conscious awareness of change. And you do that over 21 days. You work for between 15 to, to 45 minutes a day on trauma, detoxing, bad habits, the hard stuff, not longer than 45 minutes. And then you do that daily for 21 days. After more or less 21 days, you would have broken down and reconceptualized, uh, but it's still very weak. So it doesn't have enough energy. So in order for it to sink back into the non-conscious mind, where it is now going to impact your behavior and in a, and it's strong, it's, it has enough energy, it's strong enough to impact your behavior, you have to consciously still practice using it for another 42 days. So it's a total of 63 days, three cycles of 21 or nine weeks. So what do you do in the other 42 days? Simple. You just consciously and deliberately read the little act of reach that you created on day 21. And you just type that in your phone, it pops up and that you consciously and deliberately remind yourself. And as you're reading that up to seven times a day, which takes you seven seconds because it can just pop up on your phone, it keeps it in conscious awareness and it's like watering a plant. So it's growing and growing. It takes about 42 days. And what we saw happening after 42 days is it starts sinking back into the non-conscious mind. And when it sinks back into the non-conscious mind, we'll see the gamma peak and we'll see it sinking back into from in, across the hemispheres of the brain. Then it's become automatized. And automatization means you formed a habit. A habit's not some, some, some sort of monkey mind that people often refer to. A habit is a very intelligent skill that you have developed, that you have perfected and given sufficient energy that when you're in a situation, you can draw on that. Example, a doctor who's a neurosurgeon, they take 25 years to become specialists sometimes. So they have now got lots of these very, very strong thoughts that they have automatized. And through practice, they have given lots of energy. So when they're in surgery, they don't just operate from a non-thinking habit, which is often how it's referred to. They're pulling up that very strong, um, intelligent, active, dynamic um, thought, and they're using that in this current situation and adding more skill and then putting it back in again. Driving's the same thing. You don't drive automatically. You may not be consciously aware of thinking about driving, but 
that driving is 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 a very powerful, intelligent, dynamic um, memory thought that is moving up. And as you're driving, you're adding more little branches of memory onto it. So we have to shift our thinking from thinking habits are automatic or automated. That there's, there's this, people talk about the mind, conscious mind, and the subconscious mind full of programs, and we've got to change the programs. Completely incorrect way of viewing the hum, human. We're far more intelligent than that. We've got this brilliant, brilliant unconscious mind, and this whole book is about teaching people to manage that, access it, change it, and get rid of those those habits that we fed for sixty three days or nine times nine times nine, however many years you've been practicing it being aware of that. And in, you can change something that you've been doing for 20 years. You can change in nine weeks through very deliberate mind work. So one, it's to sort of wrap it up in a way that will bring it home for people. What might somebody expect? Let's say you have somebody who has self-esteem issues. And when that person maybe sends a text message to a friend, if they don't hear back right away, they automatically start thinking that person doesn't like me. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't have texted them. I shouldn't have invited them. What might somebody like that expect after after practicing these five steps for a couple of months? Well, they what they would do is if that's a common pattern. They would then let's say it happens in that moment. You could do a quick a five step process where you can immediately look at your emotional signals. Oh, I'm feeling I'm feeling rejected. I feel uh, like like a like that like someone stabbed me in my stomach. Like that shock, or you get that whoosh through your body. Like oh wow, that's this. You you gather awareness of that. And what you immediate, uh, then you reflect on that. How am I thinking? And you answer yourself, I'm thinking rejected because of this. Why am I, is, is this accurate? Is it fact? And as you do that, you then write that down. And then you recheck what you've written down and you start asking yourself questions like, is this fact? Is this assumption? Maybe that person's busy at the moment. Maybe they're in a meeting. Maybe they're trying to work out their schedule. Maybe, and if they don't want to do it, maybe they're trying to work out a way to tell me without me getting upset because they've actually got something else. In other words, you start seeing reconceptualizing and then your active reach is to not get, is to practice. I'm not going to get worked up about this. I'm going to give them the benefit or something like that. And you type that into your phone and that will pop up and see seven times today, you can say that yourself. And as you're doing that, you can, you are shifting the energy in your brain. You're turning that toxic thought that's causing brain damage, which is taking clarity away. You're turning that into something healthy. And if you do that every day for 21 days, you've changed that, that trigger. So when it happens next time that you text them and they don't respond, you've got a new lattice that you built. You've got a new thought you've built. And the old one will try and come up because you, you that's still your story. It's the cracks in your vase, but you've got this new vase that says, oh, hang on. I can actually maybe see this from another viewpoint. So you can expect mental peace. It's phenomenal mental peace. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Nothing is easy, but you learn strategies to cope. And it actually is very proactive and preemptive. Like when we start a garden and you grow ivy and you have a lattice and you first of all have to kind of attach it to the lattice with wire and then eventually the ivy is so strong. That's what we're doing. So initially you're just building the lattice of how to cope and then you're building that on. So in the book, I show you how to do that for acute trauma. Like you never know what's going to happen with acute trauma, but be in, I was in an acute trauma situation two weeks ago. And if I'd, I had I'd done this for years. So immediately that was my go-to that I fell into. I first, I wanted to just be despairing, but I've pulled myself into that knowing that I have to have clarity in my mind. I'm going to go crazy and make the wrong decision. So what do I do? I've got to get my mind and brain under control. So that's what you can expect. You can expect a level of mental peace as someone 
has an argument with you or you have an argument with a loved one or you have a toxic situation at work or we deal with what we're dealing with politically or your life is thrown in shambles for financial reasons or whatever, you're not going to fall apart and make bad decisions. You can expect your, you can expect that you can get your mind under control so that you can actually move into making the best decisions. That's what neurocycling does. It essentially trains you to train your brain, to train your mind, to train your brain. Does that make and sense? Then, absolutely. And then we can physically alter our brain over time, right? And then exactly. this stuff gets easier. You've changed well, it. Over, over the nine weeks, you've actually designed the structure of your brain. It's like you can design what you want your brain to look like, which is really cool to think about it. And nine weeks is doable. You know, if you had to say, I had to do this for, for five years, as you say, people would give up. But I hope everybody goes out and buys a copy of your book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. It really helps break down these things, make sense of it. And you give some real life examples in your own life, which were really helpful to read about how you applied them and how it changed things for you. Thank you so much. Well, I hope that it, I hope it helps people. It helped, it's helped me <laughs> and a lot of lot of thousands of well, millions of people. So hopefully it'll help more. Even as a therapist, I learned a lot from reading it. So I'm sure... Other people will too. Dr. Caroline Leaf, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Welcome to The Therapist Take. Normally, this is the part of the show where I pick three of my guests' mental strength strategies and talk about how to apply them to your own life. But Dr. Leaf has five steps, and it's important to do all five. So I'll give you a recap of how you can apply those five steps to your own life. Number one, gather information about your toxic habits. Think about any habits that may be affecting the people around you as well as your own mental health. That could include anything from testing how much other people love you by threatening to cut them out of your life to ruminating on things that cause you to feel bad. A lot of people who come into my therapy office struggle to recognize that they've developed unhealthy patterns that lead to a whole bunch of different problems. Sometimes one toxic bad habit shows up in slightly different ways, so it's hard to see that everything points back to that single habit. So if you're struggling to identify what your toxic habits are, a therapist can provide some objective feedback that could help you figure it out. Number two, reflect on your bad habit. Reflect doesn't mean that you should beat yourself up about having a bad habit. Instead, it's about recognizing how that habit developed over time and how it's still impacting your life. When you start to connect the dots about why you do certain things, you can let go of a lot of hurt and shame. Perhaps you got made fun of as a kid, so now, as an adult, you find yourself making self-disparaging remarks in an attempt to make fun of yourself before someone else does it for you, for example. Just reflecting on something like that could be life-changing. Number three, write down what you notice. Get it out of your brain and put it on paper. That can help you make sense of your toxic habits and the toll that they're taking on your life. Number four, recheck. This is when you examine how you can change your behavior. What can you do instead? Or what can you do when you realize you're engaging in this unhealthy habit? This is the time to identify some common triggers, patterns, themes, and reactions that you have. And number five, active reach. This is where you develop your new plan. For example, you might decide when you start to feel anxious, you're going to go for a walk or practice a breathing strategy to calm your brain and your body. So those are Dr. Leaf's five steps for cleaning up your mental mess. Gather, reflect, write, recheck, and active reach. It's always a good idea to have a specific strategy that you can apply to the problems in your life. And when you have a five-step plan like this, you'll feel more in control of the issues you're experiencing. 
And a healthy sense of control is really the first step in tackling any kind of problem. To learn more about Dr. Leaf's research and her strategies for reducing anxiety, stress, and toxic thinking, pick up a copy of her book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. I hope you enjoyed hearing her wisdom as much as I did. And make sure to tune in on Friday for this week's Friday Fix. I have a huge announcement about the future of the podcast. I can't wait to tell you what's going to happen and the story behind it. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.